and welcome to State of Ready. Here we will strive to inform you of new ideas and infuse technology into emergency management. We also will bring a wide and diverse perspective to issues, concerns, and problems that you can help solve. Join us now for State of Ready. Thanks for listening. Well, hello there, State of Ready listeners. We're back. Both Bill and I uh, are back. And uh, we are back on the line to talk to you more about State of Ready and where we've been. Uh, I mean, it's been a crazy past couple of years. I know everybody has had their own experiences um, at wherever you are listening. Uh, but we've all experienced a pandemic over the last couple of years. And uh, we took a pause while we worked in our respective fields. Um, uh, during the pandemic there, but we're now back. We've got a ton of knowledge and we've got a ton of surprises for everybody moving forward. Um, so welcome back to State of Ready. Uh, over the past three seasons, um, we have talked to you about what it is to do uh, to get ready for a disaster in various different areas and various different disasters. But uh, Bill, what are we expecting moving on season four? Well, I think we're going to do a lot more uh, interviews of our personal experiences to see what we lived through and maybe lessons learned from that. Uh, in addition to looking at critical events from the past and maybe things that could have been done maybe before they happened, uh, as my infamous line goes, shake hands before a problem rather than pointing fingers after. Uh, I think it's really important for us now that we're outside of the pandemic to look forward to what we're going to be doing in the future and all the other wonderful things that are going to be happening to us as if there's not already enough. Uh, so I think moving forward, it's going to be a, a new adventure and start looking at some old experiences to maybe be better prepared for the future. Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect way of putting it. Um, a lot of us have got a ton of experiences now and knowledge, and we don't want to lose that moving forward with everything that we have uh, learned and adapted to this new age that we're living in um, and our disasters that we're dealing with are continuing to move forward at uh, ever-increasing intensity and ever-increasing pace. So uh, just lead off our episode here, we thought we would um, first off do real quick introductions. This is Ed Colson here, uh, State of Ready co-host located in the Northwest, Portland, Oregon. And uh, Bill, you want to go ahead and uh, let our listeners know if they're the first time here, where you're at, and what uh, what you bring to the table here. A lot. Absolutely. So I'm located in San Francisco Bay Area, and representing Twenty One Clutz, which is a public safety training company, and we are uh, located in the middle smack dab of the Bay Area, uh, south of San Francisco, north of San Jose. And really looking at uh, how we can explore what we've learned along the way and make sure we don't lose that knowledge as we move forward. Sounds great. So our first, um, what would you say, uh, our first um, episode here that we're going to use or talk about is something that uh, Bill, um, our co-host here, uh, has personal experience with. Um, if you're a responder, if you're in emergency management, um, and an incident happens that comes with no warning. You either get it on your cell phone. Um, back then, I guess, where we're going to talk about came across pagers, maybe. Um, maybe it comes across your email. Um, or if you're at your desk, somebody knocks on your office and says, the big thing has happened. An incident has happened. What do you do? How do you mentally process that? What is your um, 
steps that are going through in your mind as we try to figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to respond. So what we're going to talk about here is uh, the San Bruno pipeline explosion of September 9th, 2010, uh, of which happened in the Bay Area, as uh, where Bill is from here. And so um, we're going to take the uh, lead of interview interviewee. Bill's going to be our guest for our very first season four episode here. So um, Bill, why don't you go ahead and lay kind of like a foundation to the background um, about, uh, first off, if you want to tell us about the San Bruno area, what uh, our readers can uh, mentally picture, and then what was happening where, where were you when you first heard about it? Absolutely. So the city of San Bruno is located actually directly adjacent to San Francisco International Airport. Um, it is a very suburban community, uh, it has some industrial area. Uh, but for the most part, it is a bedroom community of San Francisco and San Jose. And really, uh, relatively, just like any other suburban community where, you know, small issues, small problems, uh, large shopping mall. Uh, but really, it's the airport and the airport traffic that uh, when we think about potential problems, that's where we think it's going to end up coming from because it is such a heavily used airport, especially in the Bay Area. Um, San Bruno Police Department, which I was not a member of the time, but I had worked there previously, is again, just like any other suburban community. Um, it is a agency that's staffed usually somewhere between four to six officers uh, for the residents of that community. Uh, the increase in the population goes up. It's actually now where YouTube was, is uh, based out of is actually in San Bruno, California. And uh, there's also some biotech companies. And it's also adjacent to uh, the South San Francisco and the city of Millbrae which is just south of them. Awesome. So when this happened, that if you go back to that day, September 9th there, where were you when you first heard about it? Uh, so I actually was working for the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office. I was assigned to the jail, and I was getting ready to start a meeting in which uh, we're going to discuss some issues that were occurring within the facility. And I got a phone call from somebody who told me, hey, there's a plane down in San Bruno. And I asked where it was in San Bruno because I actually was living in San Bruno previously. And I got told it's up in the hills somewhere. That's all I know. I don't have any more information. And the person hung up. Well, okay. <laughs> just like that. So once again, you know, you just get that phone call. Here's your initial incident. And so many things, um, so many things like, can you walk us through what were some of the things that were going through your mind at this point here? You get the phone call it's in the residence or it's in the area where you live. Uh, what things go through your mind at that point? Uh, well, first of all, I think one thing that goes through my mind is how many of people who I know, friends and family are living in the area where this may have happened. Uh, are they okay? Are they safe? Um, what do I need to do to prepare my family for probably an extended deployment? Cause I was working and it was almost the end of my shift. And I figured I'm now going to be on shift for probably in the next 12 hours, if not longer. Um, because at that point I would have been on for 10 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, I started thinking about how am I get there because uh, when you're assigned to jail, you don't have a patrol car. So you got to figure out how I'm going to get to that location. What does it look like? What resources I need to bring with me? Uh, N95 masks, which I wish I had had. I didn't have any of. Uh, all the equipment I would need overnight, including how am I get fed? Where am I going to do for brushing my teeth, comb my hair, all the stuff that you need for a bug out bag as we've talked about one of our previous episodes yeah. i had none of that prepared because i fully anticipated going to work and staying in the jail where i had all the needs i needed taken care of um and then what went through my head was 
when I get there, what is the scene going to end up looking like? And what can I have prepared before I even show up? Uh, because I know the people I worked with at that time, very few actually knew the city because they were not from there, nor had they worked there. And I knew the community very, very well with the people who I know who live there, work there. Um, and I also wondered about what was the response and how did a plane go down in that area? Because in the area where the pipeline ended up exploding, it's not underneath a flight pattern. And so it made no sense to me. And so it was trying to make sense of that as well. And in my response was, what are the steps that need to happen in case an airplane is down inside a community? Yeah. So, okay. So there's a lot that's going through your head there. Um, what's very interesting is you brought out that the responders from that community, the majority of them aren't from that community. So they, they work there, but they're not from there. But you have that unique relationship that you live in the community that you work. Um, and so that ties into your response. When that happens, what, what would you say to people who work in the community that they serve? Um, what would you say to them or how would you relate to them um, the feelings and emotions that go through that? And how can then you impart that knowledge to the people that you work with? Well, uh, fortunately being in the Bay area, we always talk about earthquake plans and what's going to end up happening in case of an earthquake. And one of the things that we came up with as a family was in case of a disaster like that, we're going to have one point of contact. So that way everyone checks in with them. And then assume that we're going to be off the radio or off the communication for as much as possible because we're going to be working, going to be doing it stuff. So uh, immediately I went to the fallback, which is I need to talk to that person, make sure they're ready to go and get all the phone calls, their phone's charged up, they have everything they need, and start figuring out what resources they need. The second thing was uh, putting my phone on mute other than for select people. Because I knew that everyone in the world was going to be calling me and it was going to be, I need to focus on what my job is as opposed to answering every single person's call that I would love to be able to tell them. But quite honestly, I have way too much going on to be able to stop and talk to them. That's, that's one of the interesting side notes about this is I know someone who went into a dispatch center and was receiving calls from England asking what the status of this was. Wow. And it, it became a big question mark about what is to happen, but it detracted from the services that need to be provided because of that. And then the other thing that went through my head was how many of my friends and family are personally impacted? Are they going to need a place to stay? Uh, what do they need to be okay? And then unfortunately, because we've had problems in the past, I also was thinking about looters and who's going to be in that area uh, committing crimes that shouldn't be in that area and how to potentially seal off that area. Uh, my job is taping security of the, the people and residents of San Mateo County. So, while it may be an emergency response, I still need to be thinking long-term about making sure to keep their property safe as well. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, and so I, I think one of the big takeaways that I got from that was, is, uh, is the little things, like you said, putting down uh, and, and and making distractions go away. So really hyper-focusing on the incident at hand, knowing that such a high-profile incident is going to have a lot of people interested and a lot of people that know you are going to want some sort of understanding i think that's a key takeaway is when you get ready to respond somewhere to really get into that hyper focus mode and as much as possible reduce the amount of distractions 
Um, and one more question before we move on to the actual response and when you show up on scene there. Uh, for incidents like this, you know, how's that mental puzzle piece that you're putting together? Are you relying upon uh, your institutional and experience knowledge that uh, you've learned from training? Or is this one of those that you look at every incident, especially these large ones, as, uh, you know, steps one, two, three, four in the book, or you bring the book with you? How does that go? So I, I think I'm fortunate to be old at this point. Um, and part of it is the institutional knowledge of knowing that community, knowing what to do because I've been through so many different experiences. And I think part of it also is drawing upon the knowledge base of my friends and family as I'm going to the scene to be able to get a clearer picture. 2010, we didn't have drones. Uh, 2010, we had very little situational awareness, very little instant command. And uh, my own experience was limited in any of that. It was before all the fires started happening in California. It was before we started looking at how we could do a better job of responding to things and being a lot better organized. And so a lot of it was expertise and knowledge based upon past experiences. A lot of it was a lack of knowledge. And so if you don't know, you sort of make it up as you go along. Um, I think we know as emergency managers, there's often times where we can't be fully prepared for everything. And there isn't a plan for everything. Um, and so sometimes it's do your best job and beg for forgiveness later on if you make a mistake. Um, I will never forget one of the little side note. One of the major things that ended up happening right when I got seen was someone had parked a car, uh, several patrol cars right down the hill from where the fire was. Oh. And so uh, I have previously made keys of every single patrol car that I've ever had. And so I started trying all the keys and found a key that worked, even though they weren't my agency's cars. And then I started driving the cars and moving them to the parking lot without the people knowing that I moved the cars because I couldn't find those people. And so I think little things like that of know what your role is, but then also be looking down the line to see what you can do to help prep it. So that, that way, do you, if you need to respond or do something, you're ready to go for it. And you don't have to start fumbling around looking for where the keys are. Now, side note, I never told them I actually moved their cars to create a problem later on because I should have followed up with, oh, by the way, I moved your cars. I just never saw them again. Um, so le lesson learned. Uh, I was doing it proactively. Negatively, I probably should have done one more step and let them know where I moved the cars. Gotcha. <laughs> I bet that's a story to tell. Probably hear it down the line. So let's, uh, that's a great lead in. So now you're on scene, you know, take me through your size up process here. Um, what are you, what are you thinking as, as more team members are coming or you're part of the response and, and how you're going to be able to, uh, uh, size up this incident and prioritize. Absolutely. Uh, so when I get on scene, I, I should say, so I am actually responding from the city of Redwood city, which is South of San Bruno by about 30 minutes. Uh, we won't talk about how fast I drove because this is recorded. Uh, I'll just say I got there very, very quickly. Um, and upon coming on scene, I blew past a CHP checkpoint with my lights on. Uh, they just kept waving me through. And I got up the hill and I saw the biggest fireball I've ever seen in my life and biggest fire I've ever seen. Uh, the initial thought was, what did I just get myself into? Um, and actually, it was a little bit of a flashback to Ghostbusters Safe Up Marshmallow scene. Um, where it, the, the flames were so huge that it boggled my mind about how this could be a plane that was down. And, and also, what does the whole perimeter look like if this is what I'm seeing? Uh, I responded from the south. What I didn't know is there's actually several other teams on the north. And in the debrief, we found out that's one of the issues we have is we had a lack of communication because 
people were on their primary radios, not on the um, multiplex for everyone to be able to talk to each other. And there's no one clear person who was in charge. And so when you had a universal response of every law enforcement agency on the peninsula responding to it, the, and there was the National Guard from San Bruno who showed up. There was the SPCA who showed up to start helping out with the animals. Um, there were volunteers who were stopping by who said, I, I can't, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm here to help you, whatever you need. Uh, and then there was a grocery store that was where we parked in the parking lot where some people uh, had the foresight to say, we need all your water, save all your water. You're not allowed to sell it to anybody else. We're, we're, we're taking it over, for lack of a better term. Don't worry, we'll pay you back. Uh, and then also looking at making sure to get that bathroom operational because we had so many people there. Um, and so for me, the initial response was, wow, what I get myself into? Uh, second of all, this is going to be a huge operation. It's going to take several hours, if not days. Uh, third of all, I do remember seeing a work crew from pg e with a bulldozer uh, about 50 to 100 feet away. And I went, that's kind of weird, but we can use that bulldozer to stop part of the fire if the fire is still burning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other part of it was who's in charge and where do I go to find out what I can do to help them? And it became very apparent that there was no one person in charge uh, until someone showed up with bars at that point as a deputy. Um, and when someone showed up with bars, they sort of took control of it and started detailing out missions for people and where they're going to be going. Okay. And so I think that was the other interesting thing was once I got a mission, it was very, I'm very task oriented. So then I knew what I could do. Gotcha. And how long would you say it took for the lead deputy the bit with the bars uh, to show up and be able to give on-site instruction and command? So uh, it actually was a neighboring agency who I knew the person from my experience working in San Bruno before. And they showed up probably 30 minutes after I was there. And after a stack of about 20 of us showed up uh, all in separate cars, uh, all parked all over the roadway. Uh, and, and there were some of us who were trying to make sure there's a path available for fire to continue to keep rolling to where the fire was. Uh, because, and we've talked about this before, an actual shooter um, response. We have a really bad habit of parking as close as possible without creating any safe ingress or egress. And so that became one of the, the things that we started working on is how can we get people in and out safely and make sure they continue to keep traveling. Were you involved in any of the uh, evacuation process from the surrounding area while fire was dealing with uh, the incident there? I, I was. So we were on the south end of the fire and there's actually where the fire ended up happening is actually the extreme west, uh, almost the extreme end, west end of San Bruno. And then there's a gully, and on the other side of that was another housing tract where friends of mine lived, uh, several officers lived, the police chief lived, and so we got assigned to go ahead and start moving those people out. Um, we we had a learning system, so we put the learning system out. Uh, we started work with our public works to start blocking off entrance in, and egress out of that area, and then it started knocking on doors to let people know, "I need you to pack up your stuff. You need to leave now." We, we don't know which way the fire is going, but it looks like it's coming this way. Gotcha. So what, since many of our listeners are in emergency management, what pieces of emergency management were you relying upon and pulling on as an operational on-scene individual? Uh, definitely unified command and operations was heavy because that's what I was assigned to. Um, I started 
getting direction and none of us thought about any of the ICS forms. Uh, I know I'm going to get slapped around for that one later on by every emergency manager. It's okay. I get it. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I will say that it became a lot of immediate steps for evacuation, getting people safe, making sure our people were taking over the, the areas to block people in and out of, not let people in unless they lived in the community to be able to get their stuff. Pets, animals, uh, important stuff. And then I think part of it also was logistics and thinking about the next steps about what we were going to need for continued deployment. Like I said, the water, the bathrooms, the food, um, and really looking at that, I was not concerned about recovery at all. I was simply concerned with the immediate response and how long the immediate response was going to take. And also completely perplexed by how big the fireball still was and why the fireball hadn't stopped. Uh, because at that point, I've been up there for 30 minutes and I'm not an expert, but I've been to enough fires. It didn't make sense to me why a fire was still as large as it was and wasn't dying out at that point. Because again, the rumor among everybody was it was a plane down. And for the longest time, it was a plane down, plane down, plane down. It was probably an hour and a half or so before we finally found out it wasn't a plane down. It was a pipeline that blew up. Gotcha. So there's a lot that's happening in that initial fog of war, I guess you could say, in that initial response as that coordination is starting to happen. Um, how long or so in your initial pod, I guess you could say your initial group and you show up there, you know, how are you able to make sense of it? And if you were to give this advice to somebody who's a, in emergency management or a first responder, uh, rookies, you know, first timers, um, how would you be able to help them to make sense of a situation of that large magnitude and put it all together? Uh, number one, have your go bag, as we've talked about before. Uh, number two, upon initially responding, if you don't see someone in charge, take charge. Don't wait for somebody to do it. Uh, once someone is there to take charge, listen to what their directions are. Uh, and then the third thing is train, 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 and start thinking about uh, unusual occurrences that couldn't end up happening. Uh, Gordon Graham uses a great line, which is uh, low frequency, high liability. When you start looking at things that can end up happening that are so off the wall that you'd never believe it's going to end up happening, um, you at least need to work through that and think to yourself, how am I going to end up responding to this? And what does that response look like? And I think it's important to have sort of some ideas in your head about if A happens, then B happens and just work systematically through that sort of checklist. And, you know, again, it's one of the things you and I did where we put out the evacuation checklist. If so many hours out, here's what you put together. And I think that that was a lesson I learned from this incident was how important it was to make sure you, you think about all the things you're going to need and have it as a go, uh, ready to go in case of emergency. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the big things. Um, once again, that che evacuation checklist that Bill was talking about, it's available on our website, State of Ready. We can, in our previous episodes, we've linked to that checklist. Um, I, granted, we're in, we're in the winter, but that doesn't mean that wildfire preparedness stops. Um, but you can find that checklist at uh, some of our previous episodes there. What would you say some, uh, and you kind of touched on this, but what would you say some of the training, um, emergency management related uh, was beneficial? Uh, what what parts of it? You could drop classes, you could drop, um, you know, uh, training webinars, but what do you think somebody in a position who is going to respond to these incidents, uh, emergency management wise, what trainings do you think would be appropriate for them? Number one, I think you go to the FEMA website and you register for F for uh, 
uh, 100, 200, 700, 800 and take those classes and actually pay attention when you take those classes. Don't just do it to check a box. Um, there are things I wished I would have known before I went there that were covered in those classes. So regardless of who you are, youngster, old timer, middle ground, if you haven't done it, go to the FEMA website, register, give your, get your ID, take the classes. They're free. There's absolutely no reason not to do it. So I think that's number one. Uh, number two, I wish I'd been through an ICS 300 and 400 class as a cop and seen how important it was to take operational control and start making decisions and start the whole process, um, the P, as we've talked about before, um, and work through everything you need to do in order to make sure that you and your people are ready to go. And I think the other thing is really the, the thing I relied upon most was I had a lot of stress indoctrination while going through my basic police academy. Um, everything from simulation, which if people don't know what simulation is, it is uh, in essence a paintball bullet that looks just like a real bullet uh, that fires out of real guns and uh, really hurt when you get hit by it. Uh, although it doesn't leave wounds, uh, it definitely leaves you smattered with paint. And uh, the academy I went through had an entire week where we had incidents like that where people would try to ambush us and people would be chasing after us. And at one point, someone took out a semi-automatic uh, machine gun and started shooting at us. And so it, that stress indoctrination of when the stuff hits the fan, needing to actually do something rather than the deer in the headlights panic look. Because unfortunately, I've seen a lot of that in, in the years of public safety and emergency management when something like the state puff marshal man ends up happening because the fireball is so large people freeze and so it becomes important to then know who your coworkers are and be able to get them on task also i think that's the last thing is um, in the absence of leadership stepping up to the plate and doing something so that, that way people can start working and getting stuff done rather than just sort of standing around gawking at good lord i've never seen something like that before yeah, <laughs> which brings up a great um, point. We've talked about this before, the book Unthinkable by Amanda Ripley. It's everything that you had said about how people react when faced with a crisis that is either uh, unimaginable, overwhelming for them, or, or in their or just even a normal everyday crisis that they seem to experience. Uh, for our readers out or listeners out there, highly recommend the book Amanda uh, from Amanda Ripley called The Unthinkable. Um, it's a book that really is helpful to anybody wanting to get in the first response or uh, emergency management field. But I think it really is beneficial for everybody to read. The human, the basic human reaction when faced with something out of the ordinary, what happens, why it happens, and how we can overcome that so that we can, in essence, just survive whatever is occurring there. Well, Bill, I appreciate this kind of the uh, walking through uh, what an incident is and the thought process and everything that we are supposed to be thinking about um, moving forward there. Um, what uh, if you we kind of highlighted it before, but moving forward, what would be three lessons learned that you would like to give to our State of Ready listeners um, about this incident or anything you've learned from it? Well, I think number one, uh, it is being prepared mentally and physically uh, and emotionally for a long-term deployment at a moment's notice. Um, and not just having your preparation be a go bag or talking to your family about pre-planning, but mentally being ready to know that you're going to be working for extended amounts of hours. Uh, I worked 18 hours that day. Um, and I can say at the end of the 18 hours, I was dragging. Um, and I had 
no food. I hadn't used the bathroom in probably about eight hours. Um, it, it was, it was, it, it was definitely the end of my day and I couldn't move much more. Um, and thinking about that recovery piece so that that way, when you get done with it, you actually have a safe place to digest for yourself what ended up happening. Uh, number two is I think, you know, really taking your training for what it should be, which is practice the way you're going to play. Uh, I've said that again on previous podcasts. Too many people click boxes in training, whether or not it's online or whether or not it's in person. And so they say, I did it, but they don't really take anything away from it. And it's it's the old adage of you teach to an instant, not through an instant. Mm-hmm. We should be teaching through an instant, not to it. And I, I think the last part of it is knowing for yourself that if you know people in the community, how you can make sure to be able to focus on what you need to focus on, but at the same time, know that there are people who are going to be worried about you as well. And I think that's one of the things I hadn't thought about was while I'm there not answering my phone, it creates uh, a, an issue for my friends who are wondering if I'm okay, who don't live in the area anymore because they know that I lived in the area. And so it became a question of, is he alive? Is he okay? Is he helping out? Because I wasn't answering my phone, I wasn't going to be answering my phone. I just didn't have the time. I hadn't put any thought into that. And that's that whole idea of, I moved a bunch of cars, but I didn't tell anyone about it. Well, if I go to a scene and I do my one phone call to family and friends, but then I don't follow up with it or I don't have them follow up with it, no one really knows. And so it creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of, um, a lot of concern um, from other people of well, what is it that's happening? And I think that that's really the last part of it is making sure you have things prepared where you're thinking about those things ahead of time. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for letting us uh, uh, delve deep into the mind of Bill Fogarty there and pull out these little gems here. Really appreciate that. Well, State of Ready listeners, we uh, thank you very much for tuning in uh, to our season four number one episode here. Our next topic that we're going to discuss, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, moving on, we're going to talk about the what I experienced in the Pacific Northwest here in the year of 2021, uh, the extreme heat wave that uh, pretty much just devastated the Pacific Northwest. But how was it here uh, in Portland, Oregon, where we saw the highest temperatures ever recorded in a city that is not prepared for dealing with heat that magnitude there? That'll be our next episode. Um, Bill will interview me and we'll do the same um, layout there. We'll be able to kind of walk through the incident what I was thinking, how an emergency manager is able to support his community, and uh, the lessons learned that come out of that. So we thank you again for tuning in um, to State of Ready here. Uh, our plan moving forward, Bill, why don't you go ahead and let everybody know what we plan on for the rest of 2022 and 2023 moving forward. Well, I think our goal is to get these episodes out once a month like we wanted to do before. Um, also look at experiences that we've both lived through um, and and or read about and have knowledge about or have talked to people who are at those experiences and, and really explore what it means to be emergency responders from a emergency manager perspective, law enforcement perspective, public safety perspective. So that, that way we can hopefully help our leaders learn from uh, situations in the past, because if you don't listen to what your past is, you're doomed to repeat it over and over again. Yeah. And we've learned so much over the past two years and throughout this pandemic. We don't want to lose those lessons learned, both uh, institutionally, organizationally, as well as individually. We've all pulled out lessons from 
our response and how we dealt with the pandemic from operationally in our organizations, but even internally, mentally and, and behaviorally, you know, how is our mental health and resilience uh, dealing with the pandemic? So lots of topics on the pipeline, no pun intended, lots of topics <laughs> on the list there for uh, us to be able to talk about in 2023. We thank you very much for listening to State of Ready. You can reach me. Um, I'm the owner of Ready Northwest Emergency Management. Um, you can reach me at readynw.com. And Bill, if they want to get in touch with you and your company, where can they go? Absolutely. So it's uh, at 21 Clutz on Twitter, which we have a lot of followers. Follow us. Let us know you're listening to us. We always like to hear feedback. Um, you can also reach me on my website, www.21clets.com. You can click on instructors. You'll see me listed there and you can go ahead and send me an email. I'll be more than happy to respond back to it. Awesome. And you can also follow me on Twitter at ready underscore Northwest. We thank you for listening. If you like our episode, we ask that you please hit subscribe so you'll be notified when our next episode drops. And with that, we want to tell our state of readiness centers, thank you very much. And we will talk to you later.